0: There's a culture war going on in this country. We can no longer remain silent on the issues that affect us all. Decisions we make now will determine our future. But how do we engage with the culture in a way that honors Jesus? How do we rise above the noise to know what is right and what is true? It's time to bring God back into the conversation. It's time to reconnect. Here's Carmen.
1: Welcome, friends. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is The Reconnect. We're here to speak the truth on the real issues of the day in real time. And that means that today we are going to revisit again the Roy Moore issue in Alabama. Because how do we bring the mind of Christ to bear on the issues of the day? Well, first of all, we can't deny the issues of the day. And we have to be people whose minds are informed by the Word of God, uh, who we become very serious about the matters of the day, uh, particularly when we're talking about uh, people who are seeking to live their Christian faith publicly and in the public eye and as public servants. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to be talking about uh, that ongoing issue today. I think that uh, for our part, we need to recognize that people don't just need another opinion piece. They don't just need a piece of our mind. They need someone to lead them into the truth. They need someone to share with them the very peace of the mind of Christ. Now, you and I are actually the people deployed by Christ in the world to do that. It's our job. It's our responsibility. It's our calling. uh, And so we ought to make it our life's pursuit. In order to be equipped to do that, I invite you to visit me online at reconnectwithcarmen.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our email newsletter. You can also like The Reconnect on Facebook. I actually uh, post a fair amount uh, on our Facebook page in terms of timely news and information and equipping. do Facebook Live videos every once in a while, so you will want to uh, click on um, that little button on our Facebook page in order that you uh, become informed when we're doing a Facebook Live. Obviously, you can also um, communicate with me on Twitter. I am at Carmen LaBerge. Um, all right, friends, uh, I'm gonna dive right into the subject matter uh, for the day. Uh, for the last two nights, CNN has invited prominent evangelical thinkers, Al Mohler and Russell Moore, uh, into live conversations about the continuing drama related to Alabama Republican candidate for Senate Judge Roy Moore. Um, i'm gonna I'm gonna actually lead off today with um, uh, a clip from Dr. Moeller's conversation with Don Lemon from two nights ago um, about this subject.
0: The scandal surrounding the Senate candidate Roy Moore is forcing Christian voters in Alabama to make a really tough decision. How is an evangelical Christian voter supposed to choose which is more important, their politics or their faith? Well, you know, that's a very good question. It's a crisis of conscience that evangelicals are facing right now acutely in Alabama. And, uh, you know, Don, the first thing we have to understand is the severity of these charges. If, if, if we're united on anything in terms of moral judgment as a people, surely it is the fact that uh, no 30-year-old man has any business having anything to do with a 14-year-old girl. The sexual abuse, uh, which is all that it can be called, of a minor is something, thanks be to God, even in this morally confused age, there's still a strong consensus. is just absolutely wrong.
1: Okay, so you can tell there that Dr. Moeller has arrived at the place where um, he believes the women. He believes the rising number of uh, allegations against uh, Roy Moore, um, and, and in his mind, it certainly sounds like this crisis of conscience is only answered in, uh, in one way. Uh, it's interesting to me that the question that Don Lemon asked is how are evangelicals supposed to choose between their politics and their faith? Um, First of all, there is no choice in that, in that, uh, there's no choice in that. Um, If at any point in time you are considering choosing politics over Jesus, you have chosen wrong. Uh, That's just that simple. Um, You have made a commitment of allegiance to a Christ. Uh, He is not only your savior in terms of life eternal, he's the Lord of your life here and now, and he is the Lord of your conscience. And so that crisis of conscience that you're experiencing uh, is easily resolved by putting yourself in full submission to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, come what may in the politics of this world. I mean, we have talked uh, frequently here about the reality that Christians live uh, in the context of every variety of government, some good, some bad, some worse than others. And so it's not a question of whether or not we are going to be living our lives as people of faith in in the context of a corrupt system. We're going to. We are supposed to be the people who bring the mind of Christ to bear on the issues confronting us uh, personally, uh, in our families, in our schools, uh, certainly in our communities, and yes, in the culture at large. So that's what we're seeking to be equipped to do here today. Uh, Dr. Moeller actually then addresses this as a gospel issue. Okay, all right.
0: I'm just trying to understand how that makes sense, because if he, if he did do it, she said, if he did do it, that would be a criminal offense. Shouldn't he go to jail, right? And, and maybe she can forgive him instead of becoming a U.S. senator? What is happening here? Well, the Christian worldview, you know, Don, the, the scripture, the Christian worldview is really clear on this. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he, meaning Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that's the gospel of Christ. But there are two things here we have to note. First of all, that means confessing that sin and repenting of that sin. There's no biblical notion of being forgiven of sin that one has not confessed and of which one has repented. That's just completely alien from scripture. But the other thing is, is that biblical Christianity understands that the, even though one is forgiven in terms of the grace of God and the blood of Christ, uh, there are still penalties to uh, to behavior in, in terms of the criminal law.
1: Okay, so uh, that's where we get to the conversation about uh, what, if anything, Roy Moore is confessing. Uh, what, if anything, he is repenting of. You might, uh, you might know that, uh, well, it was a little more than 24 hours ago now, I guess it was, uh, 48 hours ago, now uh, Sean Hannity basically issued uh, an ultimatum to Roy Moore, uh, basically saying, uh, "You got 24 hours to, you know, to justify, uh, give me some kind of justification, address the allegations that we're hearing." So Hannity said, "Look, I give you 24 hours to explain uh, the these inconsistencies and in how you're addressing the allegations." Um, otherwise, you know, I'm gonna have to call for you to step aside. So, Roy Moore actually responded to Fox News uh, host Sean Hannity in a in a letter, and he lays out in that letter um, his his denial of knowing. Uh, he addresses two of the uh, two of the women, the allegations raised by two of the women. He concentrates on um, what what I think were probably. All going to discover is at least a, um, uh, well, a signature in a yearbook um, that doesn't all appear to be in the same pen or the same handwriting, all those things. So um, I think that in an attempt to produce some kind of forensic evidence, uh, somebody probably altered uh, the material that was available. But here's the thing uh, if that's the only If that's the only thing that uh, Roy Moore um, can substantiate any sort of response to, he has a growing problem. His problem is not getting smaller. It's getting bigger, and it's getting bigger by the day. Two more women uh, have come forward to describe unwanted overtures by Roy Moore. um, And many, many, many of these um, incidents, these allegations, took place inside of uh, one particular mall, Apparently, on Friday and Saturday nights, um, while teenagers uh, packed into the mall, that was the time the teenagers were there, it was also the time uh, Roy Moore was at the Gadsden Mall uh, in Gadsden, Alabama. And um, these women who are now coming forward, uh, their stories include what I would describe as an incredible level of detail uh, and, uh, and a lot of references to other people who were in these same places and spaces at the same time, and corroboration by other people who remember things um, I- happening in a similar way. And, um, and so the Washington Post has a, a very long story on this today um, that includes the details from a growing number of women in terms of their accusations uh, against the Republican candidate for Senate, Um, And so I think that we need to talk about whether or not uh, the judge's excuses or uh, responses are adequate. So let's hear uh, Dr. Moore's answer to that question.
0: You know, here's the problem, Don, when the autopsy on this is done sometime later, it's going to be, I think, a combination of the severity of the charges. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't imagine charges more severe. But to be honest, from an evangelical conscience perspective, also the inadequacy of Judge Moore's response and, and his mm-hmm. denials, uh, they just were far too elastic mm-hmm. uh, to fit the, uh, the, the moral importance of these charges. I think many evangelicals are just beginning to understand that as the evidence piles up as the charges are made. It, it's, it's not so much just the credibility of the charges. That's there, of course. But it's also uh, the inadequacy of Judge Moore's denials to date.
1: Okay, friends, and you're saying to yourselves, um, well, this all seems very one-sided. There certainly are defenders of Judge Moore. There certainly are evangelicals who are, who are conflicted, genuinely conflicted by the accusations um, raised against him uh, and, and by Judge Moore's response. He has chosen to couch his response um, uh, as a spiritual battle. He has, uh, he has determined to um, describe himself uh, as a victim, of a vicious and nasty round of attacks against him. Uh, and, um, and there are those rallying even now in a press conference um, coming to his defense. So the willingness of, of evangelicals to overlook uh, really potentially very, very serious transgressions um, is a problem. Russell Moore, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church, uh, chided his fellow evangelicals um, for supporting Donald Trump during the presidential campaign. And in the aftermath, the allegations regarding Roy Moore, um, uh, again, expressing his dismay, he has said, Christian, if you cannot say definitively, no matter what, that adults creeping on teenage girls is wrong, do not tell me then how you stand against moral relativism. Uh, Dr. Moore said that in a tweet, and he reiterated um, his revulsion on cnn with anderson cooper 360.
2: we have heard people uh supporters of more in alabama saying you know talking about biblical precedent about you know the age of of men and women who were involved in each other in, in in the bible uh they've talked about sort of they've compared this to you know lawnmowers when you hear some of the 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 words the comparisons that are being made as a man of faith what do you think well, my blood pressure has been uh, elevated in recent days uh, with people suggesting that, uh, that, that even, uh, even when such horrible things take place, that it's the equivalent of Mary and Joseph. No, it's not. Or uh, as I heard uh, one person say on television, I believe it was yesterday, that this, is, uh, this would be a misdemeanor. And so it would be the equivalent of stealing a lawnmower. Stealing a lawnmower. That, that, that's the most horrifying sort of moral relativism that I can imagine, uh, especially when we're living in a country where there are so many women and girls uh, who have their lives being being crushed by uh, powerful men uh, who are who are using sexual advances and sexual assault uh, against them. We need to have the moral clarity uh, to come out and say sexual assault is always immoral and always wrong.
1: Okay, so if you've been paying attention you uh, recognize that we have been listening to clips of um, very well-respected evangelical uh, thought leaders in our country, Dr. Albert Moeller and Dr. Russell Moore, Um, and they haven't been on Fox. Uh, They've been on CNN. And so um, if you've been paying attention, and maybe you've been listening to the radio today, you've probably heard Ed Stetzer on NPR. If you're paying attention to the Uh, op-ed pages of the New York Times, you are reading the testimony in those pages of evangelical Christians on this subject. So let's just pause right there for a moment, hit the pause button in terms of the particular conversation that we're having about Roy Moore and his fitness to serve as a U.S. senator. And instead, let's have the conversation about being careful what you wish for, being careful what you pray for. How long have we, been, uh, have we been belaboring the concern that Christians have been sidelined from the conversation to the day? Christians can't get a hearing on CNN. Christians can't get a hearing on NPR. Christians can't get a hearing in the New York Times. Well, be careful what you wish for because we, uh, we now have a hearing. We are now on trial. The world now wants to know what exactly evangelical Christians think believe and do in response to um this question about whether or not a 30 something year old man should be reaching out to in a sexual way teenagers that's the question before us set aside the question of whether or not these things happened and whether or not alabama voters are going to elect this guy and instead get yourself right right up in front of the question that the rest of the culture is now asking. They are asking, do evangelical Christians think this is okay? Do evangelical Christians think it is okay for a 30-something-year-old man to reach out in a sexual way to a 14-year-old girl or a 15-year-old girl or a 16-year-old girl? The answer to that question has to be unequivocally no. 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 No, if you hesitate in answering that question, you need to shut your mouth and you need to go get into your Bible and you need to rediscover the, the value that God places on every little girl. You, you, need to, you need to get squared up with Jesus on this particular issue. Um, that may sound strong, but here's the deal. If Christians are out there talking today in, in a day when we actually have an audience in the culture and um, it's something that we've been looking for, something that we've been desiring to have an opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel into the culture. If we misstep in that, if we fail to speak the truth, if we misrepresent Jesus Christ in the context of this particular conversation at this particular moment of crisis in our culture, we will be held accountable for misrepresenting God in the culture of our day. I, I don't I don't know about you. I am far less concerned about being on the wrong side of history in a conversation. I am far more concerned of being found to be on the wrong side of a holy God when I have to stand in front of him. So let's be sure that we know the mind of Christ on the matters of the day before we go shooting off our mouths. And before we go and uh, and defend someone who we really don't know what happened. Are you ready for the exposure for which you've been praying. That's my question to evangelical Christians today who've been harping and chirping about being pushed to the sidelines of the cultural conversations of the day. Culture doesn't wanna talk about the gospel. Culture doesn't wanna talk about Jesus. Culture doesn't wanna talk about the Bible. That's not true. They are giving us a full hearing today. They're giving us a full hearing on CNN. They're giving us a full hearing on NPR. They're giving us a full hearing in the pages of uh, of the New York Times. This is our opportunity to speak the truth. Are we doing so in a way that honors Jesus? I want to lift up to you um, an opinion piece in the New York Times by William Brubaker III. William Brubaker III is a law professor at the University of Alabama. He admits in the opening line that he's an evangelical Christian and a Republican. Now, for a lot of Uh, cultural elites, that's like a three strikes and you are out formula. So why is it that William Brubaker III, an evangelical uh, Republican from Alabama, is getting a hearing in the New York Times? Well, because he's willing to speak the truth on the issues of the day. This is an excellent example of how you present yourself as a Christian on the issues of the day in a way that honors Jesus. If God gives you the opportunity to have this kind of a platform in the op-ed pages of the New York Times, this is what you do with it. He defines evangelicalism as a Christian movement committed to the authority of the Bible, the necessity of personal conversion, and the evangelism and exaltation of Jesus Christ, especially in his death on the cross. He talks about what evangelicals believe, among other things, that Jesus offered himself as a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. He talks about his resurrection and his ascension into heaven and the coming judgment. He then defines sin as a, a problem from which no one is exempt. He talks about the world not being divided into good people and bad people, but but that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He he quotes... Um, He goes on to quote uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So if you don't know who that is, there's a guy you ought to read. He's a Russian novelist um, who basically took the words of Paul and made them contemporary in his own day, saying, The line separating good and evil passes through not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Um, What Mr. Brubaker does in this very short opinion piece in The New York Times is present the gospel. He says, evangelicals used to be known as people who opposed worldliness, the tendency to adopt the world's assumptions about what is desirable and important. He then goes on to ask the questions of evangelicals that the cultural elites are asking today. A lot of why, why, why questions. And then he goes here, and I think this is where we need to go as well. We need to be calling for a distinctively Christian witness in our day. Uh, Mr. Brubaker reminds us that... um, Jesus is the hope of the world. And evangelicals believe um, that Jesus is the hope of the world. Other things, other persons, are not. He taught that our allegiance to him must uh, must relativize all other allegiances. And then he quotes the Lord. Whoever comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. I mean, I just want you to note that uh, Mr. Brubaker uh, got the word of God into the opinion page of the new york times why because he was actually prepared to take the platform that he'd been praying for and he was prepared to use that platform in a way that honors jesus he concludes this way While this should not mean disengagement from the public square it means that such engagement should proceed from a posture of humility love of neighbor and ultimate loyalty to christ instead of um. Uh, identifying the success of a given party or political movement with the advancement of the kingdom of God. So what um, Mr. Brubaker is doing there in that paragraph is making the argument that I make in uh, in Speak the Truth, that it is time for a distinctively Christian witness in in the public uh, conversation that we're having here in the United States of America. Not red, not blue, but distinctively Christian. Christians actually need to prepare themselves to engage the cultural conversations of the day as culture makers and culture remakers, um, as people who are remade in the image of uh, of God, being conformed ever more and more to the likeness of Christ. Um, and that means that we engage the culture in ways that honor Jesus, regardless of where that falls along party lines. Mr. Brubaker concludes this way, Roy Moore's success among, among evangelical voters, like Donald Trump's success, is a consequence of the fact that we evangelicals seem to have conveniently forgotten certain fundamental truths. And then he says, we need to open our Bibles. Um, Again, I believe what he's appealing for is a restoration of the word of God to its rightful place in the life of every believer in order that the church of Jesus Christ might be restored to her rightful place in the life of the culture. That is the appeal that I make in Speak the Truth. So um, if you've been wondering what the book is about that I wrote, this is what it's about. This is it right here. So go to reconnectwithcarmen.com and uh, get a copy of the book. You can get the audio version if you're a person who likes to listen and not read. Uh, I'm happy for you to have it. Hey, before we uh, go to break today, I have got some show-related news for you, a little personal news between you and me. Uh, Tomorrow will actually be the last live broadcast of The Reconnect on two of our broadcast uh, stations. If you listen to us on WAVA or WTLN, Uh, Currently, our ministry partners, actually the ones who gave us our start in 2016, Um, we want to certainly say thank you to those of you in those listening areas, and we want to invite you to continue uh, the conversation with us at reconnectwithcarmen.com. I will continue to look at the headlines and issues of the day. I will continue to uh, produce and broadcast the Reconnect One programs on 450 outlets nationwide. Uh, And in the new year, I look forward to... um, being able to be back with you in an hour-long format um, with other partners across the nation. And so the end of this week, uh, we'll be signing off with our broadcast partners in Orlando and DC, but we will be with uh, the rest of you uh, for a period of time going forward. Uh, We just wanted to be quick to say thank you to our listening audience in those areas. The Reconnect is a listener-supported ministry by people just like you, and so we'd appreciate it if you took a minute and visited us at reconnectwithcarmen.com. You can sign up for our email list. We'll send you additional resources to equip you to reconnect the eternal with the everyday and bring God back into the conversation. Hey, while you're at the website, you can become a reconnector. Reconnectors are our ministry partners who uh, join us prayerfully and financially to expand the reach of the ministry to more and more people. Again, you can find more information at reconnectwithcarmen.com. Let me ask you, if God were to answer your prayer today and give you the platform of CNN or give you the platform of NPR or give you the platform of the New York Times, would you actually be prepared to take that platform and speak into the issues of the day in ways that honor Jesus? Well, your platform may not be um, as big or as broad as those, but you have a platform because you're going to have conversations today with people who want to know what evangelical Christians actually think about these things. All right, friends, this is The Reconnect. I'm Carmen Laburge. We'll be right back. plays back where he belongs, right in the middle of every conversation So we're talking about what people are talking about. We are equipping you to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. We invite you to connect with us online at reconnectwithcarmen.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can also let us know what you're thinking about. I'm on Twitter, at Carmen LaBerge. All right, friends, while you're at the website, I'd invite you to sign up for our email list. That is the best way to keep up to date with what's going on. Um, we won't overwhelm you. We send uh, one email a week. Uh, Let you know what you've missed and keep you apprised of timely equipping resources that are designed to help you reconnect the eternal with the everyday and bring God back into the conversation. So right now, the newest resource we have posted, it's just been up a couple of days, is one called Pray the News. If you have grown increasingly despondent, (laughs) I don't use the word despair and evangelical in the same sentence, so I had to find a new one. So the word is, if you become increasingly despondent, uh, I would invite you to check out the Pray the News resource. Uh, It will reinvigorate your uh, your prayer life around the headlines of the day, and uh, and hopefully bring uh, the witness of Jesus Christ to bear on what's happening in the real lives of real people. All right, friends, um, we are going to change gears and start talking about Advent. Uh, We experience the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the season of Advent, but a lot of evangelical Christians are not necessarily too familiar with the concept of a season called Advent. So we are going to talk to Scott James again. Uh, We talked with him last year. He's a pediatric doctor living in Birmingham, Alabama. He and his wife uh, Jamie have four children. He's a member of the church at Brook Hills. He is the author of The Expected One anticipating all of Jesus in the Advent, Uh, Mission Accomplished, a two-week family Easter devotional, and his new children's book, The Littlest Watchman. Scott, welcome back to The Reconnect.
2: Hey, Carmen, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. All right, let's just start off with a big, broad question, um, and that is, what is Advent?
2: It's a great question. So, uh, by and large, most people are going to associate Advent with a little countdown calendar of some sort, and it's going to essentially uh, just mark a season in which we are counting down to the real holiday here, which is Christmas. And so something that I, I think is important for Christian families in particular uh, to focus on during Advent is to kind of treat Advent in and of itself as a season, right? So it's it's not just the precursor to Christmas. It actually is what sets the table for it. And by sort of focusing on Advent and, and la- allowing that season to prepare our hearts I think we're going to appreciate the celebration of Christmas all the more. Um, So Advent simply is just referring to the coming of Christ, and it's basically that little, uh, you know, we celebrate it as a four-week period before Christmas, um, but it's uh, this season of building anticipation, building expectation, uh, looking forward to what's ahead, but recognizing, kind of like what you were just referring to in the news, that we are in a world right now in which there is some despondency. We're in a position now where We're looking forward to promises that have yet to come true. And so Advent is just let's prepare our hearts, put ourselves into the shoes of those who are watching and waiting for Christ, uh, and kind of see what that's like to be looking forward to the coming promise. And then Christmas morning comes, and you celebrate. He came, right? God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Uh, But it helps us kind of rewire where we're at and what we're looking for. Um, Also gives us a parallel to look at right now where we – await the second advent of christ and so it helps us sort of ready our hearts for the position that we find ourselves in now where um we're looking forward to the promise of jesus's return and so we're kind of in a perpetual advent state right now where we're waiting for his return and we're trusting in that promise so i hope christians can kind Absolutely. of focus in on uh, advent and, and celebrate it in that sense
1: so when you said it's a countdown calendar that's the way a lot of people um now intersect with with advent um, actually, the concept of a countdown calendar to Christmas, uh, what you and I would call an advent calendar, um, that's really been largely co-opted by the culture. We see countdown calendars of all kinds um, in this particular season. So I love what you've done in the expected one, anticipating all of Jesus in the Advent, because one of the things that you help us do is sort of reclaim what we're supposed to be expecting, what we're supposed to be anticipating. Um, and so uh, just tell people a little bit about the resource so that they can uh, you can whet their appetite. Tell them what to expect In the expected one.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a family worship book essentially, which means it has short biblical devotionals uh, that uh, parents can sort of easily engage their children with the word of God, uh, interact over the Bible's text as it is pointing forward to Christ, and hopefully open up a little bit of conversation. You know, know, depending on the age of your uh, kids, um, just sort of engage them at their level and where they're at, and sort of help peel back the layers of the sort of of the Christmas season and, and get down really to what is most important. So each day it's a daily devotional uh, each day has a very brief passage and then a very uh, very brief devotional thought and then just some simple questions to kind of help unlock the you know treasure uh, from within that um, It really is geared towards like you, you say most people are familiar with the countdown concept so what the expected one does is it rewinds time, it takes you back to the Old Testament and it says, okay, right, now pretend you're in the Old Testament, and you're counting down to the coming of Christ. You don't know when it's going to come, but God gave you a roadmap. He gave you many, many prophecies that describe the coming king, and so all through uh, the expected one day by day, we're basically looking at Old Testament prophecies, and it's it's kind of like you got this diamond, and it has all these different facets that make up its you know composite beauty, and so what we do is we, we look at the coming of Christ from all these different facets. So we'll look at the promises that are kind of all about uh, his birth, and then we'll look at promises that are all about what type of person he would be, the life he would live, and then look at promises about uh, his death he, that you know he was promised ahead of time that he would die, he would suffer and die for us, and then of course promises of his resurrection and his eternal reign. So it's it's looking at kind of the, the multifaceted promises concerning the coming of Christ and. I look at it – I was telling somebody yesterday, actually – I look at it as this sort of crescendo of Old Testament prophecy that just unleashes on Christmas morning in a celebration of, yes, Christ came. All of these prophecies were fulfilled. And so I think, I think it's something – if a family walks through it, I really hope and pray that it deeply enriches their uh, focus on Christ during Advent and Christmas.
1: Well, you anticipated my next question because I was going to ask you um, how do these stories help us understand the entire Bible and not just the Christmas story. But you anticipated that, um, and and I do think that one of the things that uh, you help us see. Uh, is that the Bible is one story. Yeah. It's not as if, you know, there's an Old Testament and then we close that off and and Christmas, you know, uh, initiates some uh, radically different storyline. It's uh-huh. not. Uh, right. Christmas actually continues the storyline of the Old Testament and fulfills it. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, and I think it's silly. if, if we If we let Christmas stand on its own and take it away from the storyline of the Bible— Ultimately, we're celebrating the birth birth of a baby laying in a manger. O- okay, so what did that baby grow up to do? What did that? Why are we celebrating the birth of this child? It's not simply that he was born; it's that he was born, and then he lived the perfectly righteous life, and then he died a substitutionary death, and then he rose in victory. Right? Like, so we're not simply celebrating the baby just because the baby was born. Part of Christmas incorporates that entire redemptive storyline where I'm celebrating the baby in the manger because the baby in the manger grew up to be the man on the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I want, I want my kids to be just immersed in biblical theology, kind of the timelines, the, the storyline of, of redemption on Christmas morning. I don't want them focused only on a baby. I want them to fully encapsulate the, you know, God's massive plan. And Christmas is a key part of that plan, but uh, I want to keep it in perspective in that sense
1: so you will appreciate this i have uh, i have a niece and a nephew who when they were young um they they just loved the whole countdown calendar uh related to the season of advent uh-huh. and um and they they had one where there were little doors that opened in this little you know a house that has little tiny little rooms and there were each there were these little symbols in each one which you can imagine what those might have been mm-hmm. and um uh, and then when Christmas came and Christmas was over, my sister starts, you know, packing that up and putting it away with the Christmas decorations. And my nephew at the time was horrified. <laughs> and 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 she's like, well, you know, Larry, you know, we, we got to put it away. We'll get it out next Christmas. And he says, we could just start counting down again. <laughs> and so I really do. like I appreciate um, how captured children are by uh this by there being a method yeah. to what we're doing there being a rhythm to what we're doing and you do that um in the two-week family easter devotional as well uh, mission accomplished mm-hmm. but let's move let's move now to the littlest watchman because this is your new so this is a departure from the the devotional framework tell us about the littlest watchman
2: so the littlest watchman is uh it's essentially a story that i made up for my kids um and interestingly, it's it sort of, well, interesting to me at least, it grew out of our devotional time during Advent. Um, and so I'm really big on helping my children sort of uh, stoke their holy imagination. So when we're uh, engaging the Bible during just, you know, conversation in our home, I'm trying to train my kids to really kind of immerse themselves in the storyline and to uh, be empathetic readers and to kind of actually step into the text and feel what the characters are feeling and, and put themselves in the shoes of the people that they're reading about in, in the Bible. I want them to relate with those people, and um, uh, I think it enhances their ability to kind of hear what God is saying to them through the text. So I'm always looking for ways for them to uh, step into the story and imagine what things would be like. That's one of our, our favorite questions in our home when we're reading the Bible is, can you imagine what that would have been like? And so on uh, one of the days for the expected one, it's uh, a verse, Isaiah 11, 1, and it's the verse that we get the Jesse tree concept from, the The, the shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, and, and that's a Christmas tradition in a lot of homes in which um, families will take a branch and, and kind of hang ornaments on it that tell the storyline of the Bible, but it's a way to kind of um, uh, encapsulate the entire storyline of the Bible into our Christmas activities, just like we were talking about. So anyways, I I took that and said, can you imagine what it would be like to stare at a tree stump and expect a new Mm -hmm. branch to grow from that? Uh, And just kind of wrapped my kid's mind around the waiting aspect of Advent. And even sometimes the the frustrated waiting of, this feels like it's taking forever. I feel like something should have happened by now, but nothing has happened. And then, you know, helping my kids remember that God made these promises uh, in the Old Testament and hundreds of years went by before Christ actually came. And God's people had to just trust that whole time that God was going to answer this promise. Uh, and so a story came out of that. I wrote a, a little fictional story that intersects with the real story of the Bible about a little boy whose family um Uh, kind of they're they're like a I guess you could say prophets of sort they help remind the people around them uh, that God has made promises and that that we should trust God to be faithful to his word even when circumstances around us don't look like it so it's a little boy that's grown up in the time immediately before Jesus and he's waiting and watching for Jesus and sometimes he wonders what's taken so long Uh, but in the end of course it'll intersect with the Christmas story and he will uh, come to find out what what I hope we as families can be encouraged by that that God always keeps His promises. So it's a hopefully a fun little story that'll spark some conversation about um, uh, good kind of a holy anticipation that we can have as we look for the coming of Christ.
1: All right, friends. So the latest book is called The Littlest Watchman. It's a new children's book. The author is Scott James. Um, So Scott, I think that one of the things that I deeply appreciate about you um, is that you are doing all of this in your role as the spiritual leader of your household. You're doing all of this in your role as, um, the person, uh, into whose trust God has given, uh, a wife and, and a house full of little people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're not doing it really as your profession. And so talk with us for a moment. I mean, you're a pediatrician. I mean, professionally, you're a physician, um, talk with us about the importance of believers, no matter what their role, no matter what their position, no matter what their job, living out the reality of the faith in the context of the real world.
2: That's a fantastic question. That's uh, that's heavy on my heart. Um, That's something that I try some days better than others to be really, really um, deliberate about how I interact with that question. Because um, I feel like God has given all of us different vocations. He's placed us in places where he wants us to be. And it's up to us to have kind of our ears open and our eyes open to see um, where he's placing us, what he's gifting us with, and then to be faithful where he places us. And that's going to be the beauty of the church is that it's a body made up of many different types of members. And so we're going to be scattered all throughout this world in different places. And each and every one of us are uh, kingdom outposts. We are ambassadors of Christ that are put in all these different roles. And so to shirk away from those uh, responsibilities is is to be a derelict soldier in the sense of the kingdom of Christ and so uh, I, I want to take that really seriously in every aspect of my life and so I don't want to minimize any calling I have any vocation I have so I, I look at my my role as the head of a household as as a husband and as a father and I think that's a huge responsibility obviously and I want to shepherd that well and and care for my my flock in my home well and yet I don't want to you know, miss out on the fact that God also put me in a hospital and he, and he gave me a profession in medicine in which I get to interact with a lot of families who are spiritually vulnerable and are hurting in a lot of different ways. And so there's amazing ways in, in which I can, you know, speak truth and, and grace into, into people's lives through through all kinds of different uh, avenues in, in my job. And um, I want to be faithful to that and, and aware of that and, and just make sure I'm not overlooking um, opportunities and, and things like that. So I think it's important for us to uh, consider the responsibilities where where we are and then to not get caught up in a rat race of comparing and contrasting where i am versus where you are <clears throat> it's easy to get discouraged that way if i stop and think well you know i'm just interacting with a handful of people a day and uh, carmen's on the radio she gets to talk to you know thousands and thousands of people so she's obviously more important in the kingdom uh, and then i can get sort of discouraged with my lot in life and that's I think that's kind of antithetical to the gospel power that I believe in.
1: Yes, especially because Carmen just thinks she's talking to you, so don't scare her by (laughs) by suggesting. (laughs) All right, friends, uh, the author, the the pastor at some level, um, the pediatrician, the shepherd of the flock that God has gathered in um, in a home that we call James uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, Scott James is the author. Uh, the books uh, include The Expected One, Anticipating All of Jesus in the Advent. And then the newest book is The Littlest Watchman. Uh, and I would encourage folks who are looking for resources to use in their own families uh, in preparation for the season of Christmas, do so um, in in, an ex- in a season of expectation and anticipation. Uh, use the season of Advent to actually prepare yourself and uh, the flock gathered in your home um, for the coming of Jesus the Christ. Scott, James, thank you so much for joining us again today on The Reconnect.
2: It's my pleasure, Carmen. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. All right, friends. Um, as you can probably tell, I I like it when people who are not, let's say, professional Christians, uh, are actually pouring uh, into the world all the good stuff that the Lord's pouring into them. So, uh, don't don't be a um. Don't be a vessel into which God is pouring all kinds of great stuff that you just keep there for yourself, all right? You weren't meant to just soak it all up and uh, and enjoy it for yourself. You were meant to pour it back out into the lives of others. And so I'm gonna encourage you to do that today in whatever way uh, the Lord might uh, both equip and lead you to do. Okay, friends, this is the point in the show where we go what we call below the fold. We lift up a story and make a connection that's designed to help you engage in a conversation of the day that initially may not appear to be about God. Usually a culturally relevant conversation, today's certainly is. My goal is to equip you to introduce eternal principles that can change not only the course of a particular conversation, but the way another person is thinking and ultimately uh, the way we are all living together in community with one another. So um, what I have for you today is an obituary from the New York Times. Now, just when I say that, you should say to yourself, "Wow, the New York Times doesn't actually do a whole lot of obituaries," uh, and the fact that this obituary ran so quickly uh, is is noteworthy um, because that only happens uh, in in one of two circumstances. Because I can tell you that there are people who the New York Times has already prepared obituaries for, and so those will run very quickly uh, upon the death of those very famous individuals. And then there are people who are um, such, uh, such a large presence in the, in the culture... And then when I say this name and you've never heard it before, you're going to be like, how is it possible that name is so big in the culture and I've never heard it? There are people whose obits get into the New York Times within 24 hours of their death simply because there is at least some portion of the culture paying attention to these individuals. So the person um, who has passed away uh, goes by the name Lil Peep. Lil, Lil, L-I-L, Lil Peep. Lil Peep. Uh, it was a 21-year-old young man from Long Island. Um, he is described as a rapper who blended hip-hop and emo. And you're saying to yourself, I don't exactly know what emo even is. Um, well, let me just say this. Um, Lil Peep uh, died on his tour bus in Tucson, Arizona. Um, he was by himself. And uh, indications are that he overdosed on anti-anxiety medication uh, known as Xanax. Lil Peep was born Gustav R. Uh, in 1996, raised in Long Beach on Long Island, the son of a college professor, father, and an elementary school teacher. His mom spoke uh, through his publicist, uh, saying that um, she wanted uh, the publicist to convey to the rest of us that she was very, very proud of her son uh, and everything he was able to achieve. In his short life so what I want to highlight um, for you uh, is that everyone knew everyone knew this was a young man right on the edge everyone knew that this was a young man addicted to drugs everyone knew this was a young man uh, who was self-harming everyone knew this was a young man who had uh, all kinds of depressive episodes and depressive thoughts he is identified in the new york times as having an uncanny knack for pop song craft uh many of his songs we are told were recorded in his bedroom when he was living on los angeles's skid row after dropping out of high school Uh, he spent months making music there much of which he describes as an absolute blur because of the drugs he was doing at the time um Lil Peep, the New York Times tells us, cut a striking figure, tall and gaunt, hair dyed pink or blonde, and wearing an elaborate array of tattoos. Now, just just take a note there. You don't wear an elaborate array of tattoos. You spend hours um, under a very painful process of getting tattoos that are uh, permanent, become permanent uh, fixtures on your body. Uh, and and many of, uh, well, Lil Peep was covered with tattoos, um, many of them on his face, covering his neck. Um, and uh, and when, when you get tattoos on your face, you're communicating something. When you get tattoos on your body, you're communicating something. And the tattoos that you choose to get um, on places that everybody can see all of the time, like an anarchy symbol on his face, along with statements like crybaby, Um should have communicated to folks that uh, this is a person in deep distress. In fact, everybody knew he was in deep distress. Um, One of the people who commented uh, on his what what you and I would regard as untimely death um, noted that uh, Lil Peep was uh, a person who had problems, um, that feared being alone, who needed to know that he wasn't alone, um, sad and depressed. Um, and uh, and one of his managers actually said, I've been waiting for this call for more than a year. I've been waiting for this call for more than a year. Let me um, intervene right here and say, if you actually know that someone in your circle of influence um, is at this level of distress, you have a moral obligation to intervene. You have a moral obligation to intervene. This is a person who was in so many ways uh, crying out for help. Um, how is it possible that his manager could now admit that he's known for over a year that this young man was in this kind of trouble? If your friends are in trouble, I need you to tell them today that you see it, that you know it, that you're not willing to simply allow them to be devoured by the enemy who is seeking to kill and destroy them. Uh, friends, we got to fight for it. We we got to, there is a spiritual battle going on uh, in our culture and it is, uh, It is after our kids. It's after us too, but it's after our kids. This is spiritual warfare. And so uh, I thought I might equip you today with a few verses of scripture as you go from this conversation into the conversations of the day, recognizing that uh, there is one prowling around, seeking even now to devour us. So I give you 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you. Than he who is in the world. Uh, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8:37, and Zechariah 4:6. Not by might nor by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. All right, friends, we are out of time for today, but I would encourage you to saturate your life with the Scriptures in order that when life squeezes you, it would be the Word of God that would come out. This is the Reconnect. I'm Carmen Laverge Visit me online at reconnectwithcarmen.com.
0: The Reconnect is brought to you by the Presbyterian Lay Committee. To continue the conversation and become part of the Reconnect community, visit reconnectwithcarmen.com.